Well, thank you for tuning in tonight to our Bible study at Mount Airy Baptist Church. And uh, tonight we're going to be talking about something I'm not sure that I've ever done before. I have referenced these kind of things. I have maybe spent a few minutes talking about the intertestamental period, but I don't know that I've ever done a whole Bible study. And I thought about it in this way. You know, there, there have been times when certainly I've done a whole Bible study on a book of the Bible. And, and there have certainly been times when I've done a whole Bible study on a chapter of the Bible. Uh, there are times where I've done a whole Bible study on a passage, a, a paragraph of the Bible. There have been some times when I've done a, a Bible study on just one verse of the Bible. Just a whole Bible study on just one verse of the Bible. But I don't know that I've ever done a whole Bible study on a blank page. But that's what we're going to be doing tonight. Today or tonight we're going to be talking about the intertestamental period, which is the time between the Old and the New Testament. Those of you perhaps that perhaps have just turned in, uh, tuned in rather, uh, we've just finished the study of Malachi. And that's what led to this discussion that we're going to be doing both tonight and next Wednesday night. I, I kind of hoped we could confine it to one night, but uh, it's evident we're going to need two nights to do that. But uh, the time between the Old and the New Testament is a fascinating time. At the end of Malachi, the final book of the Old Testament, the Gospel of Matthew seems to be, if you take your Bibles and just look at it physically, at the end of Malachi, the, the Gospel of Matthew seems to be just one page away. But in reality, there were 400 years of history between those two pages. Most of you probably have a blank page in your Bible between the Old and the New Testaments. That blank page represents 400 plus years of history. Now, the question is, what happened during those 400 years? That blank page between the Old and New Testament represents what some people call the silent years. It really is the period of time from the prophet Malachi, which was about 400 B.C., roughly, to the preaching of John the Baptist. That, that's what we're talking about. Prophet Malachi, the Old Testament, to the preaching of John the Baptist, around 25 A.D. That's the period of time we're talking about. Now, it might be called by some the silent years, and I'll tell you why in a few moments, but it was not, God was not inactive during those years. This period of time, this 400 year period of time from Malachi to John the Baptist, uh, it's bracketed really by two important scriptures. One I'll give you tonight, and one I'll give you next Wednesday night. These two scriptures really are the parentheses or the brackets around these 400 years. So the, the very first scripture I want you to find is in the book of Amos, the Old Testament book of Amos. That's one of the minor prophets. So if you go towards the end of the Old Testament, you'll come to the book of Amos. And I want you to find chapter 8. Amos chapter 8. <clears throat> this is the prophet of God speaking, and this is what he says beginning in verse 11. The days are coming, declares the Sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine through the land. Not a famine of food or a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. Men will stagger from sea to sea and wander from north to east, searching for the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. Amos prophesied there's coming a day when there'll be a great famine in the land, but not a famine of food, a famine of the word of God. The last prophet to speak in the Old Testament was, of course, the prophet Malachi. 
which is the last book of the Old Testament. And for 400 plus years, there was no prophetic voice. For 400 plus years, the prophecy of Amos was being fulfilled. It was as if God had stopped communicating with His people. Now, a lot can happen in 400 years, right? Would you agree with that? A lot can happen in 400 years, historically. I mean, just think about America. Just think about what America was like at 400 years ago. Well, first of all, there wasn't an America 400 years ago, was there? The pilgrims, if I have this right, the pilgrims landed at Plymouth Rock in 1620, which is almost right at 400 years, maybe 401 years. And a lot has happened since then. For example, the founding of our country. And what year was that? 1776, is that what you said? Okay, I heard some rumbling, I wasn't sure. But, but imagine this, if you will. Imagine going from the time of the pilgrims until now with no word from God. Now, certainly they had the Old Testament Scriptures, but there was no prophetic voice. It was as if God no longer was speaking to His people. No prophet speaking on behalf of God. So a lot can happen in 400 years. Now think about it in this terms. What if we could somehow transport somebody from Plymouth Rock to Powdersville today? What would the response be? Yeah. They absolutely did have a hard time comprehending it. It would be a totally different world, right? If you could transplant somebody from the days of the Old Testament to the days of the New Testament, they would have a similar shock. It would be a completely different world. I think sometimes we look at the Bible and think, well, you know, the the people in the Old Testament and the people in the New Testament were were a lot alike. And they didn't have... No. If, If you could transport somebody from the Old Testament 400 years into the New Testament, when they walked the streets of Jerusalem in the New Testament, they would have been shocked. It would have been a different world. A completely different world from what they had known in the Old Testament. So, Malachi to Matthew may not be that far in your Bibles. It might just be a page away. But it, but it covers a period of time where everything changed. Let me give you just a few examples, uh, and then we're going to talk about these in detail next week. A few examples of how everything changed in that 400 years. Instead of being ruled by Persia in the Old Testament, when you come to the New Testament, Rome is the dominant power. Instead of the world speaking Aramaic or Hebrew, as they did in the Old Testament, when you get to the New Testament, they spoke Greek. Instead of a localized culture, various localized culture. There was in the New Testament what was called a Hellenized culture. And I'll explain that to you in a few minutes. In the Old Testament, you had a temple. This is what I was referring to last week when I was kind of giving you the, uh, the sales pitch. In the Old Testament, you had a temple. In the New Testament, you still had a temple, but you had something else. You had synagogues in various towns. And now, remember, in the Old Testament, there was just one place. Jerusalem. But in the New Testament days, there were synagogues in places like Capernaum and and Bethsaida and different places like that. Um, 
Then in the New Testament, you had some religious groups that they never even existed in the Old Testament, like Pharisees and Sadducees and Essenes. So a lot of things changed uh, in that 400-year period. Now the question would be, why did they change? It's because of that blank page. That's why they changed. All of those changes and more came about during this time between the Old and New Testaments. And the things that happened during those years, the things that happened on that blank page, the things that happened in that 400-year period, roughly 400 years, shaped the world of the New Testament. So I can summarize those 400 years for you in one sentence. I don't think this is on your notes, but you might want to write it down. If I could summarize that 400-year period in one sentence, it would be this. God was preparing the world for the coming of Christ. God was preparing the world. Between the Old and the New Testaments, God was preparing the world for the coming of Christ. Now, there are basically four different ways to view this important time period, this 400-year time period. There's four different ways to look at it. We're going to try to do all of those, not tonight. Tonight, we're going to look at it historically. And then next week, we're going to be looking at literature and Judaism and the major events in that 400-year period. So we're going to look at it from four different angles, this 400 years. We're going to take it apart and put it back together and look at it from four different angles. Tonight, we're going to focus on historically what happened in those 400 years. Now, I don't know if history is your thing or not, and we will be in the Bible some tonight. But I recognize that what I'm about to talk with you about tonight, for some of you, it's like, wow, that is just so not what I'm into. (laughs) You're going to be hearing names and places and dates and all kinds of things like that. And it may not really jazz you, if I can say that. But let me say, let me say this. What we're going to be talking about tonight is so foundational to understanding the rest of what we'll talk about next week. You have to understand this history. What, what happened historically in those 400 years? When you understand what happened historically in those 400 years, then you can see what God did with it to prepare the world for the coming of Christ. So tonight's foundational. I hope you'll stick with me. I hope you'll dig through it. But it's foundational to everything else we're going to be talking about. So, let's talk about history. By the way, a lot of what we know, and you'll hear me say this guy's name from time to time, so that's the reason I'm taking a moment to explain it to you. A lot of what we know about this time period, we do not know because of the Bible, but we know because of a Jewish historian by the name of Josephus. Josephus Flavius, if you've ever gone on a trip with us and you, were, you, you heard that name, didn't you all heard it a lot on the bus from, from our tour guide. He was always quoting Josephus, Josephus Flavius. And, and so he was a Jewish historian. He was a Jew, born in Jerusalem. He was a Jew, and he wrote a history of the Jews for the Romans. And a lot of what we know about this time period will come from him. Uh, now, here's what I want to do tonight. I want to talk about four kingdoms. Four different kingdoms that, that came about during these 400 years, during this in, intertestamental time. The four kingdoms are these, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. These are the four kingdoms uh, of the world during that 400 year time. By the way, much of what we're going to be talking about is predicted in the book of Daniel. 
This is fascinating to me. I want you to take your Bibles for a moment and find the book of Daniel. And just hold it open because we're going to look at several scriptures there in Daniel. If you're taking notes, Daniel chapter chapter 2, Daniel chapter 7, Daniel chapter 8, and Daniel chapter 11. All of those scriptures deal with what we're going to be talking about tonight. King Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon. So this is where we're going to start. We're going to start with Babylon. King Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon. He was the greatest king of the world. King Nebuchadnezzar uh, had this idea. He said, I, I rule the world, but what will happen after I'm gone? I'm the, ruler of the, I'm the greatest ruler in the world, but what will happen after I'm gone? Who will come after me? And he had a dream one night that dis- greatly disturbed him. No one could tell him the dream. In fact, he brought his counselors together and said, can you tell me my dream? They said, well, you, if you'll tell us the dream, we'll interpret it for you. He said, no, 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 no. You bunch of liars. You tell me what the dream is. And then if you can tell me what the dream is, then I know that you can interpret it. And they said, there's nobody in the world that can tell you what you dreamed. Tell us what you dreamed and we'll interpret it for you. He said, no, no, no. I don't trust you. You tell me the dream or I'm going to kill you and your family. If you tell me the dream and interpret it, then I'll give you all this other stuff. Of course, there was great tension in the kingdom at that time. And somebody told the king, there is a man here who can tell you what you dreamed. His name is Daniel. He's a man of God. So we pick up the story. I want you to go with me to Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2. Daniel comes to the king, King Nebuchadnezzar, and says, I can tell you the dream, I can interpret it for you, not because I'm such a great man, but because there is a God in heaven who has told me what it is. And in order to show you that there is a God in heaven, I will tell you your dream, and I will interpret it for you. So we pick up the story, Daniel chapter 2, verse 31. You looked, O king, and there before you stood a large statue. Daniel is describing the dream. You looked and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly iron and, and partly baked clay. Watch verse 34. This is good. We don't have time to talk about it. This is so good. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were broken to pieces at the same time because like chaff on the threshing floor in the summer, the wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. That is a reference to Jesus, by the way, what he'll do at the end of the world. Now, verse 36. This was the dream, and now we will interpret it to the king. So, pause there for a moment. If you're King Nebuchadnezzar, and here is a man who walks into your palace, and he literally tells you what you dreamed, he's got your attention, does he not? So he says, okay, now that I've told you the dream, verse 36... Now we will interpret it to the king. You, O king, are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. 
In your hands he has placed mankind and the beasts of the fields and the birds of the air. And wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them all. You are that head of gold. So on this statue that you had this dream of, you're the head of gold on the statue. Now watch this. 39. After you, another kingdom will rise inferior to yours. Just look up here for a moment. After you, another kingdom will rise. We'll talk about that in a moment. And then he says, next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. And finally, there will be a a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything, and as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all others. Just as you saw the feet And the toes were partly baked clay and partly iron, so this will be a divided kingdom. Yet it will have some of the strength of the iron in it, even as you saw iron mixed with clay. Now, now skip down for just a moment. uh, Verse 44. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom. Watch this. (laughs) In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. Look up here for a moment. There was this kingdom, a worldwide power, then it was destroyed, then there was another kingdom, and it was destroyed, and then there was another kingdom, and then it was destroyed, and then there was another kingdom, and it was destroyed. And he says, but, look what he says, in the time of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. God's kingdom. You see, there really should be another mark here. There really should, because the, the, the fifth kingdom, if you will, is going to be God's kingdom, and it will be a forever kingdom. All right, so we keep reading. This is the meaning, verse 45. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of the mountain, but not by human hands, a rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. Now, here's what was happening. For each of these four periods of time, God set the stage, and and then for a while, they were in charge, and then, have you ever been to a play where you're watching scene one, and all of a sudden the lights go down, and somebody's in, dressed in black, they're up there changing the, the, the furniture around, and then the lights come back up, and it's another scene. That was how, that's what's happening here. Prophets like Jeremiah were prophesying, Israel, your land is filled with idolatry, and if, and if you do not turn to God, If you do not turn your heart to God and obey God, God's going to send you into captivity. And what happened was, Babylon came and conquered the land of Israel, and the stage, this was scene one, if you will. And then after Babylon, the lights went down, God rearranged the stage, and this was scene two. And then the lights went down, and God rearranged the stage each time. So let's talk about Babylon, the first one. Prophets like Zephaniah, Jeremiah, Obadiah, Habakkuk, they prophesied that if you don't turn to God, if you don't turn away from idolatry, if you don't obey God, there will be uh, a captivity for you. And in fact, in 597, 
597 B.C. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, conquered the city of Jerusalem, and many of the Jews were deported to Babylon. With the Babylonian captivity, here's, here's why this is important. With this Babylonian captivity, Israel ceased to be an independent nation. That's, that's very important. Israel ceased to be an independent nation. From that time forward, they, became, they were a minor territory always ruled by other nations. Another date is 586. 586 B.C. After an uprising in Jerusalem, there were still some Jews living in Jerusalem. And after an uprising in Jerusalem, the Babylonians came. They burned the city of Jerusalem. And in 586 B.C., they destroyed the temple. And many, many more Jews were taken exile to Babylon. All right, so... That's the first period, and we're not talking a lot about that because uh, these are just the two dates that, that you need to know about. Uh, it, the further we go down the timeline, the deeper it gets, if you will. So the next period is the period of Persia. Remember that what happened here, Israel is no longer an independent nation. Now they are controlled by somebody. That's what I want you to get from here. From this point on, Israel is no longer an independent nation. They are controlled by somebody. And watch what happens. The lights go down. God rearranges the stage. The lights come back up. And now Persia's in control. Let me explain to you how this came about. You see the dates there on your notes, 539 to 311 B.C. Those, there are some variations on the dates, but I just want to give you a kind of a time frame. The, Cyrus, the king of Persia, defeated the Babylonians. And when he defeated the Babylonians in 539 B.C. Such a key date for, for the Jews. 539 B.C. Cyrus, the king of Persia, after defeating the Babylonians, allowed the people who were in exile to go home. To go to Jerusalem. Or to Judah. When they went back to Jerusalem, they went back and they rebuilt the city. And they built a second temple. The Persians basically allowed the people to maintain their own Jewish customs. They had a lot of religious freedom. It was a period that was relatively uneventful for the Jewish people. And it was during this time, it was during the reign of Persia that the book of Malachi was written. Around 430 B.C. So it was during this time that Malachi was written. Alright, now... After Malachi, let me just make a mark here. So here's Malachi. After Malachi, this is really when the silence of God begins. The 400 years of silence. This is where it, where it really begins. After the prophet Malachi speaks. Now it's interesting, and put this on your notes, there's a place there. The Persian Empire ruled over Israel during the last 100 years of the Old Testament period. That in the last 100 years of the Old Testament, Persia was the one ruling over Israel. But also the Persians continued to rule over God's people for another 100 years during the intertestamental period as well. So for the last 100 years of the Old Testament, Persia's in control. And for the first 100 years of the intertestamental period, 
Persia is still in control. It is a time of relative peace and contentment, but it was just the calm before the storm. Then we come to what's called the Greek period. And this is where it gets kind of deep, and, and I need you to follow with me. The Greek period. The key character during the Greek period is a man named Alexander the Great. You probably have heard of Alexander the Great. Uh, he came to power when he was only 19 years old, and he desired to rule the world. He was, he, he was someone who had, you, you talk about a type A personality. You talk about somebody who really wants to dominate. At 19 years of age, his desire was to rule the world. He was a brilliant military leader, a brilliant military strategist, and he conquered all of the all the of the Middle East, including Israel or Palestine. Now, according to Josephus, remember the Jewish historian, the Jews were spared and even commended by Alexander after they showed him the prophecies of Daniel. They said, Hey, have you ever read in our book what our God says about you? Your God says something about me? Yeah. Our God says something about you. Let me, and so Alexander reads this and he spares the Jewish people because of what he read. I want to read it to you. Daniel chapter 8. Daniel chapter 8. Daniel has a vision. Just like Nebuchadnezzar had a vision of, of, of the statue, Daniel has a vision of a ram and a goat. And we don't have time to read the whole thing, but we'll read verses 5 through 8. As I was thinking about this, suddenly a goat with a prominent horn between his eyes came from the west, crossing the whole earth without touching the ground. He came toward the two-horned ram I had seen standing beside the canal and charged at him in great rage. I saw him attack the ram furiously, striking the ram and shattering his two horns, and the ram was powerless to stand against him. The goat knocked him to the ground and trampled on him, and none could rescue the ram from his power. Look at verse 8. The goat became very great, but at the height of his power, a large horn was broken off, and in its place, remember this, in its place, four prominent horns grew up towards the four winds of heaven. Now, now hear this one more time. It doesn't make sense yet, but it will in a moment. Verse 8. The goat became very great, and at the height of his power, his large horn was broken off, and in, in its place, four prominent horns grew up toward the four winds of heaven. Now skip down to verse 20 and 21. The two-horned ram that you saw represents the kings of Media and Persia. The shaggy goat is the king of Greece. And the large horn between his eyes is the first king, the one who is so powerful. We don't have time to dig into that, but basically Daniel had a dream of, that included Alexander the Great. Now, Alexander the Great's goal was twofold. World domination... And world Hellenization. You see that word on your note sheet there. Alexander wanted to do two things. World domination. Wanted to dominate the entire world. Be ruler of the world. But also he wanted to bring about world Hellenization. I'll explain to you what that is. Through his conquest, Alexander hoped to make the entire world Greek. That's what it means to Hellenize someone. 
you want to transfer the Greek culture to every country in the world. That's what he tried to do. Transfer the Greek language to every country in the world. He wanted to make every country in the world Greek to Hellenize them. He so loved the Greek culture. He was inspired by Socrates. He was a tutor of Socrates. Or I'm sorry, Socrates was his tutor. And he was so inspired by the Greek culture that he felt like this should be something that all the world partakes of and and participates in. So uh, his idea was world Hellenization, make the whole world Greek. So while the Persians, while the Persians had kind of cultural leniency, in other words, the Persians allowed the Jews to be Jews. When you come to the Greek period of time, Alexander the Great, his interest was not to allow the Jews to be Jews. His interest was, I'm going to turn them into Greeks. I'm going to take that Jewish culture and I'm going to make them a Greek culture. And so one of the things that came out of this period of time, the the Greek period, is what's called Koine Greek. Koine Greek became the universal language of the world. Koine Greek was even spoken in Israel where normally they would speak Hebrew or Aramaic. So the Greek language and the Greek culture spread across the world because of Alexander the Greek, or the Great. Now, when Alexander died, guess what happened? His territory was divided into the, the world that he, that he ruled. It was divided among his four generals. Remember Daniel said that? Daniel said, once that most powerful horn will be broken, it will be divided among four. And that's exactly what happened. Um, the two generals, and we're not going to talk about all four generals, but there's two generals that we, we really need to get into uh, because they really relate more to the Bible lands and what we need to talk about. One of the generals was a man named Ptolemy. His power base was in Egypt. You've got a blank there, I think, to put in the notes. The two generals, most uh, influence of the Bible lands, one was Ptolemy with a power base in Egypt and Seleucus with a power base in Syria. Now, I know this is about to get complicated, but if you'll stick with me, it's it's fascinating. So here's what you have. The Seleucids were in the north in Syria. The Ptolemies were in the south, the area of Egypt, northern Africa. What's between Syria and Egypt and, and northern Africa? What, what's this, that land between Syria and Egypt? Israel. So what you have here is when the land was divided, when the kingdom was divided, the Seleucids who lived in the north in Syria, the Ptolemies who were in the south in Egypt, they were fighting over this land between them, Palestine, Israel. So that brings us, first of all, to the Ptolemaic period. You see that on your notes there. The, Ptolem- the Ptolemies of Egypt were the first to conquer Palestine. You know, they were fighting over it between the Seleucids and Ptolemies. The Ptolemies were the first to control Palestine. And they were tolerant of the Jews. They were tolerant of the religious practices. But still, Israel is caught in a power struggle. And there's constant battles between the north and the south. And in fact, it's, I'm trying to remember, um, I think it's Daniel chapter 11, I believe it is. 
Yes, Daniel chapter 11, we don't have time to even look at it, but if you look at, in your Bibles, Daniel 11, it, the heading says, the kings of the south and the north, or it does in my Bible, the kings of the south and the north. That's talking about the, the kings of the Seleucids in the north and the king of the Ptolemies in the south. And, and so there's this constant battle over this land called Palestine. But, but the Ptolemies ruled it first. Now here's why it's important that you know about the Ptolemies. During this period of time, the Ptolemies, remember what's the universal language? The universal language is Greek. The Ptolemies translated the Hebrew Scripture into Greek. It's called the Septuagint. That is a, a major, major uh, event, if you will, when the first copies of the Greek New Testament or the Greek Septuagint were uh, produced. So they took, it was the first major translation of the Hebrew Bible, the Hebrew Scriptures, into the universal language of the people, Greek. At the end of the Fifth Syrian War, there was a lot of different wars between the North and the South. And at the end of the Fifth Syrian War, it was obvious that the Seleucids were going to win the Ptolemies were defeated and the Seleucids from the north came and they now controlled Palestine. So that brings us to the Seleucid period. This was a crisis period for the Jews. Again, don't, I don't want you to lose you here. This is so important. This was a, the Seleucid period was a crisis period for the Jews. The most prominent enemy of the Jews was a man named Antiochus IV or also called Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus IV, uh, he called himself Epiphanes. The word Epiphanes means God incarnate. Antiochus Epiphanes considered himself to be God. Now the Jews called him Epimanes, which means madman. Because that's really what he was. Daniel chapter 8, Daniel talks about Antiochus Epiphanes. He doesn't call him by name, but look what he says. Daniel chapter 8, verse 9. Well, let's start in verse 8 to give you the context again. The goat became very great. That's, that's Alexander the Great. But at the height of his power, his large horn was broken off. He died. And in its place, four prominent horns grew up up toward the four winds of heaven. The four prominent horns are the four generals that took over. Now, out of one of them, out of one of the generals, verse 9, out of one of them, out of one of the generals, came another horn, which started small, but grew in power to the south and to the east and toward the beautiful land or towards Israel. Now, skip over. We don't have a lot of time, so let me just run with you. Chapter 11 uh, I just want you to notice, notice how Antiochus Epiphanes is described in chapter 11, verse 21. He will be succeeded by a contemptible person. This, the contemptible person is Antiochus Epiphanes. He will be succeeded by a contemptible person who has not been given the honor of royalty. He will invade the kingdom when its people feel secure and he will seize it through intrigue. Antiochus Epiphanes reigned from around 168 to 164 B.C. And during those years, listen to what his goal was. 
His goal was to make a determined effort to destroy the Jewish faith. I, I don't want to run out of time, so let me describe it to you this way. Antiochus Epiphanes was, was kind of the Hitler of his day. He really was a forerunner to what we will see in the Antichrist. Antiochus Epiphanes was a vile, scheming, evil man who was bent on destroying the Jewish faith. Let me give you a few examples of that. For one, he wanted to force Hellenization on everyone in a last, dip, uh, last uh, attempt to gain control over everyone. But for the Jews specifically, he stopped the daily sacrifices at the temple. He had his soldiers surround the temple. He shut down the temple and stopped the daily sacrifices. He outlawed the, the observance of Sabbath. And for a Jew, that, that was unthinkable that you would outlaw the Sabbath. He prohibited the Jewish practices, the things that the Jews did that made them Jews. He outlawed those. For example, circumcision. He outlawed that practice. And by the way, mothers who went ahead and circumcised their babies in accordance to the Jewish law, those mothers had to watch their babies be hung. And then the mothers were crucified. All of the copies of the Jewish law, the, the Bible, if you will, the Hebrew Bible, all of the copies that they could find were burned. But then, the crowning moment of evil. Well, but before I get to that, uh, Daniel chapter 8. Daniel chapter 8. Look at verse 23 through 25. In the latter part of their reign, when rebels have become completely wicked, a stern-faced king, a master of intrigue, will arise. He will become very strong, but not by his own power. There will be a demonic power about him, I believe. He will cause astounding devastation and will succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy the mighty men and the holy people. He will cause deceit to prosper and he will consider himself superior when they feel secure, he will destroy many and take his stand against the prince of princes. Yet he will be destroyed, but not by human power. The crowning achievement of Antiochus Epiphanes, as far as evil, was, remember I told you he shut down the temple? He reopened it after he had set an altar or, or uh, uh, not an altar, but he had set in the temple the pagan god Zeus. He had set up in the holy temple an idol, the pagan god Zeus. And then he sacrificed a pig on the altar. You know that the Jews don't eat pork. And he actually took a pig, desecrated the temple, by bringing in the, the pagan idol Zeus and then sacrificing an idol or, or sacrificing a pig on the altar of God to that idol. And then force the priest, the Jewish priest, to eat the meat, the pork, sacrificed to the idol Zeus. Daniel chapter 11, verse 31. 
and 32. His armed forces will rise up to desecrate the temple fortress and will abolish the daily sacrifice. Then they will set up the abomination that causes desolation. That's, that's this idea of Zeus and this sacrifice pig. Then they will set up the abomination that causes desolation. With flattery, he will con- corrupt those who have violated the covenant, but the people who know their God will firmly resist him. Notice that last phrase, the people who know their God will firmly resist him. And indeed, that did happen. There was a Jewish revolt against Antiochus Epiphanes. The Jewish revolt against him was led by a man named Judas Maccabeus. Judas Maccabeus, his nick, I love his nickname. I won't get into why, but his nickname was the Hammer. Judas Maccabeus was the Hammer. His dad was the first one to stand up against the Seleucids. A general came to his hometown uh, where, where this old aged priest lived. and Not Antiochus, but another general came to his hometown and tried to force his dad to eat meat, to eat uh, pork. And his dad, and even though he was an elderly priest, he killed the general. And there were a couple of Jews that gave in and ate the pork that had been sacrificed to Zeus. And the old aged priest killed those Jews. And then he ran for the mountains because he had killed this general. Well, after he died, his son took over. His son was Judas Maccabeus. Judas Maccabeus was also a Jewish priest. And he led what's called the Maccabean Revolt against the Seleucid Empire. He used what's called guerrilla warfare. Now what I mean by guerrilla warfare was they didn't have a trained army, but there were little groups of farmers and people, and, and they would attack and then they would flee and they'd attack. You never knew what they were going to do or where they were, but it was just little groups, uh, guerrilla warfare. He defended his country against the invasion of the Seleucids. Especially, he defended his country against Antiochus Epiphanes. And eventually, listen to this, eventually they actually went into Jerusalem and the guards that had been surrounding the Temple Mount, they defeated those guards and took over the Temple. And when they did that, they went into the Temple and they pulled out the idol Zeus and destroyed it. And they purified the temple. And that is why in today's... And after that, they had a celebration. I'm about to get ahead of myself. They had a celebration, a festival. And today we call that celebration Hanukkah. See, Hanukkah has nothing... We hear about Hanukkah around Christmas time. Hanukkah has nothing to do with Christmas. Hanukkah, it's an eight-day celebration of of uh, Judas Maccabeus going in and cleansing the temple and rededicating the temple of God. It's an eight-day celebration of the temple being rededicated and cleansed. And even today's time, Jews still celebrate Hanukkah for that very reason. Um, so, that brings us... L- let me just talk about the Hasmonean dynasty real quickly and then we'll stop and we'll talk about the Roman period next, next week and finish up. We're still talking about this Greek period. So you have the Ptolemies, you have the Seleucids, and the last one is the Hasmoneans. Uh, the Hasmoneans was the family name of, the, of, 
uh, the old priest, you know, who killed the general and he ran up into the mountains. That, that was the, the forerunner of the Hasmoneans. And um, Judas Maccabeus, the one who led the, who led the, the fight against the, the Seleucids. Judas Maccabeus had a brother named Simon. He was the one after the victory, after they cleansed the temple, after they had defeated the Seleucids there uh, in the Jerusalem area. Uh, this Simon was the ruler of that area, became the ruler of that area. That was the Hasmoneans. And uh, they eventually, it took a while, they eventually defeated Antiochus Epiphanes. He was eventually killed. They rededicated the temple. They reinstituted the worship of God. They expanded Israel's borders. The Hasmoneans did. They expanded Israel's borders. And temporarily, watch this, they temporarily restored the glory of Israel as a nation. Remember I told you way over here, they were always under the control of somebody else? Always under the control? They were under the control of Babylon. They were under the control of Persia. They were under the control of Greek. Well, for a brief window of time, for a brief window of time, before Rome takes over, for a brief window of time, the Hasmoneans, who were Jewish, they took over Jerusalem again. They were in charge of Jerusalem again. And the Hasmoneans, for a brief period of time, restored worship and they were in charge of their country. They restored the glory of Israel as a nation for that brief window of time. Then, in 63 B.C., Rome came in. We don't have time to get into that. We'll do that next week. But Rome comes in and this really begins to set the stage for the New Testament. Look up here for a moment. All of this sets the stage for the New Testament. What we're going to talk about next week, after we talk, talk about Rome, what we're going to talk about next week is how these different countries that were ruling over Israel, how God used each one of them to set the stage for the New Testament and for the coming of the Savior. So I hope you'll be back. I know we kind of waded into the deep weeds tonight, but next week we'll talk about Rome what God did, and that won't take long, talk about what God did in and through Rome as Rome ruled over the nation of Israel and then how God used all of that to prepare the stage for the coming of the Messiah, okay? All right, let me pray with you. Our Lord and our God, thank you for reminding us that kings and leaders, they come and they go. But you sovereignly sit on your, on your throne. You are the eternal God. You are the King of kings. You are the Lord of lords. We thank you for your gracious, loving reign in our lives. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.